I'm Jason Solomons, and this is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. In this February edition of the podcast, with talk of revolution sweeping through Egypt and possibly the Arab world, what impact will this have on Israel? And does Israel welcome democracy in the region, or fear it? We'll be hearing from a top Middle East expert in the studio. And why does Israel and its conflict with the Palestinians seem to fascinate, some might say obsess, British documentary makers and writers? And how fair is the treatment in Channel 4's current drama, The Promise? He used to be really pro-military to annoy Dad. And then the army sent him to Hebron. When he came out, he was suddenly this super hardline anti-Zionist. As on television, so in the theatre. Is it ever possible to depict Anglo-Jewish life and Israel on stage without facing a storm from both sides? We speak to one of the leading lights of the new generation of British-Jewish playwrights, Ryan Craig. This is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. And as I mentioned, joining me in the cosy Sounds Jewish studio this month are Middle East politics lecturer at New York University in London and scholar-in-residence at the London Jewish Cultural Centre... Oi. Haggai Seeger, welcome again uh, to Sounds Jewish. Haggai, nice to see you again. Uh, you've, been, be you've, again. Be, you've been on before and you came back again for, for more. Uh, levels of blackmail we, we can never admit publicly. You know. <laughs> uh, and playwright Ryan Craig, welcome, uh, Ryan. Your new play, The Holy Rosenbergs, opens at the National Theatre at the end of March. It's not the first play you've written on the Jewish theme, is it? It isn't the first play. In fact, it's probably the fourth. The fourth. Yeah. fourth. I know, it's a yeah. bit of an obsession, isn't it? <laughs> yes. I guess we're going to come to that later. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the best thing to be, you know, if you're going to be obsessed about something, uh, I think Judaism is a, it gets in there. It does, it gets under the skin. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, change has come to Egypt, with revolutionary fervour apparently sweeping across the entire Middle East. Those momentous scenes in Cairo's Tahrir Square won't be forgotten in a hurry. And they've thrilled those who've long said the best remedy for the troubles of the Middle East is democracy. But what about Egypt's neighbour to the north, Israel? The now former President Hosni Mubarak may be reviled as a dictator, but Israelis saw Mubarak slightly differently as the man who honoured Egypt's peace treaty with their country for 30 unbroken years. Now, with Mubarak gone, will the peace still hold? Even if Egypt's new military rulers are happy to remain at peace with Israel, what comes next? Haggai Siegel, when one sees speculation that the Muslim Brotherhood, the best organised opposition movement in Egypt, might eventually take over that very name, all that would strike fear into Israelis and Jews around the world, wouldn't it? Absolutely, and if you look at the origins of the movement, that is very understandable. This is the preeminent Islamist organisation, and if you look at most radical Islamist groups in the world, and particularly the ones that names that will scare listeners, Hamas and Al-Qaeda, they have links to not necessarily the Brotherhood, but links from the Brotherhood. So, for example, uh, Hamas says we are a, a branch of the Muslim Brothers. Meanwhile, the co-founder with bin Laden of Al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri, uh, is uh, the leader of Egyptian Islamic Jihad, which broke from the Muslim Brotherhood. But at the same time, um, it says, well, we've turned our back on suicide bombing. We've we, we no longer believe in that kind of stuff. We may be Islamist in the sense that we want more of a role in government, but we are, we've moved beyond those radical ideas. The concern, though, in Israel is that that's a very Machiavellian tactic, that what Islamists have learned is that to be accepted into the democratic game, pretend you're moderate, use that to get a place in government and a place in politics, and then when it suits you and when you have the strength, you take a more extreme position. And, and Hezbollah and what's gone on in Lebanon is, is very much used as a case study for that. So are they right to fear that, or 
is that kind of inflamed uh, sort of a view of politics and, in fact, sort of unjust? Well, I think the likelihood of the extremes happening, uh, I, I, I would say, are, are nightmare scenarios and, and remain that at the moment. The idea that the Brotherhood is somehow going to take over tomorrow does not, hopefully, look like it is going to transpire. There is, though, a, a, a kind of in-between scenario which is equally problematic, and that is that the Brotherhood does well enough in a future electoral process that, that they either are able to form a government with other parties that they're leading, or even they're brought into government as a minority partner. Now, why is that a problem for Israel as well? Because potentially they will seek um, distancing themselves from Israel, even potentially changing the peace treaty. But even uh, a, a less problematic step than that, and that is that they simply open the Gaza border, mm. immediately creates a crisis. So let's say we have a relatively moderate Egyptian government that does nothing different from now, except that they say, we're going to open the border to our Palestinian brothers. Suddenly, the third part of Israel's policy against Hamas, the door is opened. And that alone creates a major crisis well, because that, that it affects give, Israel's entire Middle East policy. But would that not give Israel a, a sort of a leg to stand on in, in this debate? They would say, well, you know, the Palestinians are now no longer hemmed in. They can now kind of, they're free to, free to wander wherever they wish, as long as it's not into Israel, over to Egypt. That is may well be, but what will uh, bother them and what they will more concentrate on is that that open door is a a free passage of arms, a free passage of monies, etc., uh, from extremist elements um, who will use Egypt as simply a passage to, to rearm and, uh, and refund Hamas mm. with what Israel believes are, are obvious future military consequences. Do they need Egypt as an ally? I mean, the rest of the Middle East is not exactly pro them. Just because Egypt turns, is that going to make that much difference? Well, 84 million people, something like 20, 25% of the entire Arab world are Egyptian. Uh, the most important Egyptian superpower, uh, uh, Arab superpower, I should say, in many ways. But also, an, another thing that's often lost in the analysis is that Egypt's place as part of leading the Sunni Arab bloc that's putting pressure on Iran also is important for Israel. Having actors in the Arab world who are saying, this isn't just an American and an Israeli thing. We, the Sunni Arab world, and remember that Iran is is Shiite, Persian, and the rest of the, and the Arab world next to it is predominantly Sunni um, Arab. Um, Iran is it's seen by them as a huge threat. And if you, you look at the moment, there's only one actor in the Middle East who's very happy what's going on about Egypt being destabilized. And it's the Iranians, because they see uh, an actor who can put a lot of pressure on them and who has reconciled itself with the West, potentially uh, losing a lot of its power, a lot of its influence, and, and pressure on it being diminished as a consequence. I, think, I mean, Iran is the, is, the, is the example there, and Israelis would probably fear that there will be a rerun of what happened in Iran in 1979 when the secular, uh, the secular um, Shah fell and, and then the Ayatollahs took over. Is there something of that that's possible in Egypt? Well, the comparison, if the nightmare scenario happens, is very clear, which is that one of Israel's biggest allies would overnight become one of its biggest problems. That, as you say, is exactly what happened in 1979. It's often forgotten that Israel's only and most important regional ally was Iran. There was extremely close relationship between the two. And literally overnight, it went from the best to the worst. And that is the concern here. But as I say, I, my own personal analysis is that we are very far away from that scenario developing. And if you look at what's going on with the, the protests and the opposition movements, it's very clear that they are fully aware of that potential and that while they want change and while some of them might want a more of an Islamic nature to Egyptian politics, they are 
very, very aware of the consequences of an Islamic party coming to power in Egypt and turning it into an Islamist state. And this is something they do not want. How many of those would be in favour of of a rapprochement with Israel. How many of those are against Israel? Do you know what the the general feeling in Egypt is? Well, it's obviously a very difficult question. But what I'll say is, look at Tahrir Square. How many burnings of Israeli flags have we seen? How many um, burnings of Jewish effigies, by the way, which was extremely common in the post-1967, well, post-1973 Egypt? You always saw. That was the stock image. Now, there's been a little bit of it, but it has been very very loud by its, 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 its lack of a presence. You're listening to Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. I'm Jason Solons. My guests in the studio for this edition are Haggai Siegel, expert on the Middle East, and Ryan Craig, a British playwright whose new play, The Holy Rosenbergs, deals very much with the conflict in the Middle East. Uh, it, it previews towards the end of March at the National Theatre. Ryan Craig, uh, can you tell us a little bit about it without giving away too much, obviously, or give away as much as you like, really, it's your play. Well, it's interesting you've said it's about the conflict in the Middle East, because I would probably take issue with that, I would say. Well, I haven't seen it already. That's all right. I gather it looms large. Well, even if you see it, you may say that still. Right. But to me, it's about a family in northwest London and the way they deal with the politics that are on the periphery of their experience, Uh, particularly in this play through the actions of their children. We'll get into that. Mm. So we have David and Leslie Rosenberg, who Mm -hmm. live in Edgware. I know and, them, I think. <laughs> you, well, I hope that you do think that when you see them. Um, they run a catering company, the Rosenberg's Catering Company. I do know them. Which is a, <laughs> well, exactly. Uh, and um, they're slightly on their uppers. They're about to go machullah, as my father would say. And, um, <laughs> this is bank, I translate for the, for the non-Jewish listener, of which there are three. Oh, there uh, are. No, there are. There, we, we have many, and they're very welcome. Well, they're on their uppers, yeah. essentially. And... Um, so it's in their house. They have three children. They have a child who uh, flies Apache helicopters for the IDF, or the IAF, the Israeli Air Force. Mm-hmm. And they have a daughter who is a human rights lawyer. And they have another son who is a bit of a layabout and lost and vulnerable and keeps getting into fights and getting drunk. And, and um, he's the youngest. And so the daughter finds herself working on a case which is... Uh, investigating war crimes in Gaza, I should say, on both sides of the divide. So at the same time uh, as this is happening, the, uh, David, who is the central character, is trying to save his catering business and his standing in the community. And his daughter seems to be scuppering that by her actions. So what we have is two very disparate, polarised yeah. people in the same family, trying to understand what on earth the other one is. Yeah, and you've got a micro of every day, and it gets yeah. this macro of kind of big ideals, mm. uh, which sounds fascinating, and it's a clash. Um, it's, it's not, not the, great, the great sort of challenge of any, of any depiction of Anglo-Jewish life not to go too much the, too Jewish, because you, you see them, and you, you, yet you want us to identify with them, yes, this is a Jewish family. I mean, hey, they call the Rosenbergs, sure. and they live in Edgware. That kind of helps. But you know, how Jewish should they be? Everyone's tempted to kind of Jew up when they're on stage. Well, yes, the degrees of it are very uh, crucial, and actually... Uh, these are the demons we're battling with in rehearsals all the time. I mean, actors find it very difficult, don't they? I think that uh, I think they worry. That, uh, in my experience, they're worrying more than they need to. I, I'm ve- I think I'm very sensitive to it, and I'm on top of it if I feel as though it's going, it's becoming ridiculous. Because mm-hmm. that sort of bizarre uh, Fagin-like voice, I've never heard anyone speak like that. <laughs> and when I do hear it, which is less often than it used to be. 
it, it makes me shudder. It gives me a chill down my spine. And I, and I really, it's certainly not having it in my play. Mm. That's not happening. Where are you from, right? I'm from Mill Hill. Right. So, so you're just completely different road. vernacular to Edgeware. <laughs> oh, well, we, we, you know, we feel very different. Yeah, right? quite right. No, <laughs> obviously, I spent a lot of time in Station Road. And <laughs> I, I know Edgeware very well. I hung out, hung out outside the station. I know Edgeware like the back of my hand. In fact, we went for a little trip, a research trip, with the actors the other day, and it's changed a lot. It's well, exactly. It's not the same Edgware. No, it isn't the same, actually. But that's, that's actually helpful for the play, because the, the changing demographic is a sort of part of what's happening on the outside, in the outside world. Of course. Uh, it's interesting, you're, you're, you're dealing with politics, obviously, in there, and Israeli seems to be going to be coming in there, the uh, angars of the Palestinian conflict. Um, as a, as a playwright, do you feel that you have to come down somewhere on the side of something? How difficult is it to kind of uh, reveal your hand at any point and sort of say, well, I, I, you know, I, I criticise Israel? Certainly in the recent past, there's been quite a few plays that are openly critical of, of Israel. I'm thinking of uh, My Name is Rachel Corrie and Seven Jewish Children by Carol Church, which was at the Royal Court. Uh, they, they sort of work, they, they wore their criticisms of Israel quite, quite loudly on their sleeve. What, will you be doing the same? Well, I, I sort of hinted earlier that I, I tried to steer a sort of middle way between uh, different different ideas, different extremes, and, and I try to do that with this play. Uh, in fact, the play is about trying to balance the arguments, trying to find the truth within the noise, you know, the noise and the different histories, the different narratives that everybody has. And um, I, I try very hard not to make a, a polemical statement, a didactic statement about uh, who's right, who's wrong. I mean. The play is from a Jewish perspective. It, it, it humanises Jewish people who live in North London who are dealing with this issue. And so I try very hard not to judge any of the characters. And a lot of the characters take very extreme, extremely different views, you know. I mean, people may be completely uh, horrified by some of the ideas in that play, and they may decide for themselves what the play is telling them, or they may agree with the play, and they may decide on their terms yeah. of the play. That's absolutely fine. The conversation happens after the play, after mm. you've gone And are home. you ready for those inflamed views? Because people take offence from the very first moment, from the very first kind of opening of the door, and people say, hello! You know, in, in, that's too Jewish or it's not Jewish enough. People are straight in there. You're ready for that. You're, you're experienced well, enough I, in this. I've had quite a lot of experience of it, and uh, there's, you've got to roll with the punches a little bit. And, it, uh, and actually, I, I sort of welcome it. I welcome a passionate uh, response to the play. Mm, which I'm sure you'll, you will get. The Holy Rosenberg is on at the National Theatre from middle of March. Uh, preview start on the 8th of March. I've been told to tell you that on the 9th of March there are more tickets on sale. Right, 9th of March. Don't get so your tickets for the Holy Rosenberg. You'll be one of the first to see it, and then you can tell all your friends. I saw this terrible play about Jews. There were nothing like that. Um, that's Ryan Craig at the Holy Rosenberg. We wish you the best of luck with it. <laughs> It's not just the Holy Rosenbergs touching on the conflict in the Middle East. There's a raft of programmes on television at the moment, from Louis Theroux's recent documentary on the ultra-Zionists on BBC Two to Channel 4's current four-part drama series, The Promise, directed by Peter Kosminski. As her grandfather lays dying, 18-year-old Erin discovers a diary he wrote when he served as a soldier in the British Mandate of Palestine. Erin herself becomes increasingly drawn to the complexities of Israel, past and present, and as she accompanies her Jewish friend Eliza to Israel, where Eliza's doing her army service, she experiences a political awakening, and finds that even within Eliza's liberal family, political difference lies very deep. 
Do we have to talk politics? They built the wall right across the village land. The Palestinians couldn't get to their fields to harvest their crops. So what did we do? We protested. We wrote letters. We took them to the Supreme Court, all the things my son thinks are a complete waste of time. And do you know what the court did? It told the government to move the wall and give the Palestinians back their land. Yeah, a tiny part of their land. And they did. They dug it up and rebuilt it. Yeah, and for every time when the court sides with the Palestinians in the full blaze of publicity, there are a hundred cases which no one ever hears about where they side with the government, where they throw out the appeal and legitimize the land grab. It doesn't help. It's actually his cozy liberal opposition that's perpetuating this fucking occupation. Hey, it's not my anything, Paul, okay? Fucking or otherwise. Max. And how do we perpetuate it by opposing it? You'll have to explain that to me. Uh, Haggai, I'll start with you. Uh, what did you make of it? It's clearly trying to take the history and apply it to the current events, which is something which I know that both sides complain isn't done a lot of, but it is a minefield. Uh, one of the things I say every year to my students in, is that in the Middle East there are no such things as facts, only versions. Um, and maybe that explains why this thing's going to run for six hours. Um, but I was disappointed, I have to say, by the fact that it's taken, I think, a, a relatively cardboard cutout, simplistic um, uh, ideas of some of the ways we get to where we are. They pick the obvious characters, the obvious frameworks. And I think they're also... We will see how it develops, but certainly from the first one, there seems to be a very clear moral equivalence which is being established. Now, as, what as do an you ac- mean by that? Well... It begins very clearly with a British soldier who was in Bergen-Belsen who then serves in Palestine and has sympathy of Jews because what has happened to them. And, and that is already beginning to move to the, well, what are you doing? And with the, with the viewer making an absolute and direct, clear association between those two events. And so that, you, of course, see, you see those because the, the, the strong part of that first episode was the, uh, you know, the, the, was the footage from, from, from Bergen-Belsen and it was kind of shocking as it, as it always is. You know, it's funny, I was, I was speaking to some of my students at, at the LJCC the other day, canvassing their views on it, and, uh, and one of them said something very interesting, which is, I thought it was great but I cringed and I said, why do you cringe? They said, why did they have to have them flying business class and then driving around in Mercedes Benz? So, it, it, you know, we also have to see how much, you know, this is, this our is, own viewpoint, our own... Well, this is, the British, own, this is the British girl, Claire Ford, played by Claire Floyd, who goes out with her friend, Eliza, and they're, they're, they're flying business that's class. That's right. And it's a, clear, it's, it's a clear choice on the director's part. I mean, they did have to have them flying business class. It wasn't like they, they, shut, they put it there just because they you know it's the only plane they could afford. It was a clear dramatic... Um, statement by them. Ryan, what do you think he meant by that? Well, I, I think he was, uh, wasn't he an ex-general, the dad? So he was, I mean, they were setting up not just uh, the fact that they were in, a, in comparison to the poor Palestinians. I think that's the cringe part of it, isn't yeah, it? Absolutely. But I think they were saying that here was a man who was a general, a famous man, a man of some status, which often you do in drama. You want, you want to pick somebody with a bit of power and with, a bit of, with, a bit of, with something to lose mm. in those terms. So I, I didn't mind that so much. And they had a very nice house, didn't they? They had an amazing just, house. And it was important that you started from that place where Erin, is it Erin, the, yes, the, the central character, said this is paradise. So that we had somewhere to go with it. Yes. We had something to lose, something to change about it, you know. Uh, but I, I mean, for, but, for me, it was, I think the, the paradise thing was an interesting one because what they did in the show was, and again, this is, I, I think, fascinating, you know, from an analytical perspective as an academic, the way in which the inherent assumptions about Israel and the Middle East are, are now accepted truisms within often drama because w- what is the framework? The foreign, naive English girl says, isn't it paradise? And instantaneously, the Israeli says, no, it's not. 
that's probably what would happen, though, isn't it? I mean, most, I mean, people, most sure. people, naive English girls think, even watching it, kind of, oh, I didn't know they had big houses in Israel. I thought it was all flat jackets and kind of, you know, dusty streets. Uh, I, it's very rare to see Caesarea depicted in, in, in British, on British television or in, in film at all, isn't it's it? It's also rare to see, and it's, this is uh, relevant to the Louis Theroux programme, it's very rare to see uh, the, the schism between liberal and left Jews. So you have the dad, who was the liberal Zionist and the son who was much more left wing, much more of a peacenik, and that was I, I found very interesting. So you had that that difference between them, you know. And Ryan, it, it was very interesting, and I agree. And it's an important conversation to have. But one of the issues I think the community is and, and Israel's supporters are going to take issue with the documentary is that. And you mentioned before about your attempts to avoid polemic in your pieces. Is that in effect what they've done is they have taken a viewpoint which. They want to express powerfully and emotionally. And the way they have done that is is to make that one of the key uh, themes in in the piece, one of the key characters, and have him express it in a dinner table context as if this is the normal conversation. And the opposing view doesn't come through very strongly. And again, asking my students who, by the way, many, you know, and it's so funny, they watched it assuming they were going to hate it and it was going to be horrible. And they were oh, actually, it wasn't that bad, which again tells us quite a bit about how, how, you know, our community already waiting for these horrible things to happen to them television but what they said was they 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 had a big issue with the fact this is the that promise we're talking this about. is the yeah. promise that the key character uh, seemed to be one that said israel isn't liberal i'm as liberal as it gets and the only way to be a liberal israeli is to actively condemn who and what we have become and proje- to project that as the normative israeli position or if it's not the normative israeli position that one can only be reasonable in israeli if that is one's position. Uh, why is there so much of this on TV? Why are we obsessed with it? Well, I, I think it goes back to the points we both just made, which is that there is just a fundamental inability to grasp what is going on and what people think. And I think many in this country who don't feel they want to know all the time about what's going on probably think they shouldn't have to. The more it's been thrust in their face over the decades, and it is now multiple decades, the more they feel that the lack of knowledge is somehow... Um, they're not doing what, what they should, that somehow they're not taking a responsibility in their own lives or own world. It's, it's now a necessary intellectual credential for the middle classes that one has an opinion and that one but has an opinion one, one can defend but in relation Israel, to the, uh, the, the Middle East. Palestinian one. No one. As you say, no one in the BBC yet had a clue about Egyptian politics no, being quite absolutely. interesting. So why, but they, everyone's got an opinion on the Israel, even, in, you know, even you know, from, from Edgware to, you know, to Shepherd's Bush and beyond. Yeah, and you know, there's a famous saying, Jews are news, and is, is that just that, un, you explainable thing which is you know a paradigm is is that part of it i think part of what it is is uh, and i don't think we can underestimate this is that if, if something goes on in indonesia or somewhere else in the world who, who knows where jakarta is unless they've been there who knows where over lambotor who, who who knows where sonar is but when you say to anyone who is christian jewish muslim um jerusalem Bethlehem. It, it is, it's Sunday school. It has in, instantaneous resonance. There is an inherent assumption and acceptance today that the reason why this matters is because the world is unsafe because this conflict is going on. This remarkably, remarkably naive view held by people you would have thought would be a little more intelligent, that somehow if this goes the way, everything in the world is a better place. Um, and of course it makes a difference to certain things. But, but that view that cure this and everything is all right. And, of course, if Israel's seen as the reason why it's not cured, that plays very profoundly into the, the way in which it is going to be seen and going to be reported.
finally, another Jewish family saga hits the small screen. What is it with Jewish families already? I get enough of it at home. I'm getting a headache here just thinking about it. Only at the end of last year, we had Simon Amstel's Grandma's House. And at the end of this month on our television screens will be Friday Night Dinner, written by the award-winning writer and comedy producer Robert Popper, he of The Peep Show. Mum, don't you think Adam should ask Tanya Green out for a date? Oh, very good. Meant to be a lovely girl. Sorry. Female. She is a lovely girl. Oh, she was a beautiful baby. Mm. You want me to go out with a baby? Oh, don't be so stupid. No, it'll be lovely, actually. A nice romantic date, all arranged by my mum, the paedophile. Who's a paedophile? Mummies. The, the setup here is that two uh, boys, brothers, they're going home to their mum and dad in the house. It, it looks like it's in Edgeware. They, they're going back there on Friday night for, for dinner. Ryan Craig, Jews in American TV, have worn their Jewishness lightly. In fact, don't even mention it. Seinfeld, you know, it's obviously Jewish, but they mention it. This is what Robert Popper's doing here on Friday night dinner. There's very little, to, in fact, to tell us that this family are Jewish. I knew because they drew, drove a mini up to a house. It was clearly in Edgeware, and they ate some holler. It looked like holler. It wasn't even proper holler bread, you know, and it's called Friday night dinner. But how else were we to know that they were Jewish? Is, is this the, the the main point now of Jewish culture in Britain is to kind of not be Jewish at all. Well, uh, actually, Seinfeld does mention that he's Jewish, doesn't he? He, he doesn't go on about it, but it's, it's obvious that he is. He, and he, 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 he gets caught necking during Schindler's List. He does, but I mean, that's, that's, th- th- there's an, an extra weight on the top of that because <laughs> yes. he's Jewish. <laughs> his parents' uh, friends caught him, isn't it? Uh, well, yeah, yeah, I think it's Newman, actually. So, sorry, you're going to get me on that. But... Um, there is a tradition of this um, uh, in the theatre, actually. So Harold Pinter uh, often wrote about characters who you could easily think were Jewish. The, ho- the homecoming is uh, very, very deeply set in, the, in his East End roots. Yeah, and Goldberg is a character in, and the, Goldberg in is a, the part. But, I mean, that is specifically a Jewish character. What I'm saying is there were plays written by people like Neil Simon, Arthur Miller, uh, Harold Pinter, the people that came... Uh, up in the sort of post-war theatre in America and in England, who wrote plays where it feels like the characters are Jewish. They have that sort of Jewish ping-pong, that Jewish... Uh, between characters, that Jewish angst, the neurosis, uh, all the things that we identify with a Jewish classic archetypal Jewish character, and yet they never mention that these are Jewish characters. And uh, and they... Arnold Wesker is the, 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 who, who writes a lot about mm. Jewish characters. Chicken Soup with Barley. He wrote Chicken Soup with Barley. Which, Chips with everything. Which I think the Royal Court are reviving. No, Give so, them so, a so little so plug. So there is a tradition of writing about Jewish characters without mentioning their Jewishness. And I think that one of the reasons for doing that, although I don't do that, that one of the reasons for doing it is to suggest a universality about your characters, to say that these are people with the same uh, worries and fears and uh, hopes and desires as everyone else, uh, but just with that extra sort of edge. But let's just not mention that so that you, it doesn't alienate mm. the audience. Uh, this, this, this comedy, Haggai, uh, is called Friday Night Dinner, but you and I were watching it together thinking... Well, this doesn't quite look like the, the Friday night dinner that you and I go to. I mean, obviously, everyone has their different family and every family is different. Everyone has a different take on Friday night dinner. But there were a few things missing that you'd have thought. Would, yeah, would and, we, and, you know, we were looking at it in preparation for this programme, in effect, looking for the Jewishness. And you really had to kind of desperately spot it. And, and uh, you know, it'd be very interesting to hear you know, what the framework and the premise is. And, uh, but it was almost I, deliberate. I mean, it, it seems to me it was deliberate. Let's yeah, take the Jewishness out and just let's see, you know, it's a, it's a normal family where yeah, you well, sleep and breathe absolutely. the same problems. But what I wonder, Jason, therefore, is whether you, it was, like, designed to be kind of watched 
you know, secretly knowingly by the, by the Jewish community, but it's just a comedy for everybody else. And if that's the case, I think that's a shame. Then what's the point of the setting? If you're going to put it in a particular context, um, find a way in which that context can resonate for the wider audience. I mean, it, maybe the, 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 the defense of, you know, for the makers of it would be that they don't want to fall into the, you've got to be Woody Allen to be Jewish on television. And to some extent, I can see that. But a part of me is starting to worry that we only seem to now have Jews often in these mainstream uh, things if they are either utterly not Jewish or, or the, the absurd stereotype. And it is interesting, isn't it, because uh, the, uh, the Indian identity was kind of quite out there in, in, a, in a programme like Goodness Gracious Me, for example, uh, where, where you know, the Indian actors kind of really kind of seized on their Indian identity and kind of played against it and shook up Britain to mm. this Indian identity. Uh, Jews seem to have sort of not had that moment, and yet we've kind of progressed to a post-Goodness Gracious Me moment where we are now kind of accepting that we're part of the society. We're not make, still not making too much of a, of a play about it. It. Very interesting that you have grappled with this dramatically, sort of all the time, right? I, I was thinking that as you were speaking, that this program is called Sounds Jewish, isn't it? It does. And I've come here with a name that sounds anything but Jewish. And I wonder if part of my obsession with uh, this is the fact that I've grown up in a in a Jewish enclave in North London. Uh, I went to school in North London. I grew up. All my friends were. Uh, came from North London. Most of them were Jewish. And my name is Ryan Craig. And uh, and I wonder if part of it is an overcompensation on my part to try to say, I am this, I am this thing that I am. What we've talked about today and the, the obsession with the Middle East and the uncomfortable of seeing uh, Israel's ultra-Zionist or, in fact, the promise laid bare, and then we're looking at a much more kind of secular comedy that kind of you know, hits home in North London, Friday night dinner. We said, we're comfortable and confident that we can make that, and yet we cringe every time Israel's mentioned on the news. We're kind <laughs> of still caught there, it seems to me. Well, because maybe Israel's part of that confidence issue that Ryan mentions before. That's the thing that maybe takes away the confidence of wishing to and put he, Jewishness he, out he, into his, the public his, his environment. You play the Holy Rosenberg is obviously a distillation of that tension. In some <laughs> it way. is indeed. Yes, exactly. March well done. The 9th. I'm glad we've uh, marched the ninth at the, the, the National Theatre. <laughs> uh, get your tickets here, um, um, and I hope we've given you something to go back and, and kind of kind of to, to rehearse. To rehearse yes, with. Thank yes, you. Send a little something. So we'll, we'll have a little little sounds Jewish moment. If you could have a little podcast playing in the play, yeah, that'd be lovely. A plug. That'd be nice. No, you don't have to. Um, that is all for Sounds Jewish this month. My thanks to my brilliant studio guest Haggai Siegel and Ryan Craig. Good luck with that play. Night the March. Uh, can't wait to see it. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors, the Jewish Community Centre for London. And a quick word about an unmissable show the JCC are organising later this month. It's a charity event, a comedy with a cause at the Comedy Store in London. It'll be compared by Ivor Badil and Tracy Ann Oberman, who's going to be in Friday Night Den- Dinner soon. Uh, and amongst those headlining are Helen Lederer, Bennett Aaron and Joe Bohr. See the Sounds Jewish blog for more details. From me, Jason Solomons, and my producer on Sounds Jewish, Sarah Peters, goodbye. Shalom, shalom.